Section 4 of the Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon, with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Discourse 3 upon caesar the dictator section one of caesar's usurpation and why his name is less odious than that of catiline nothing has been hitherto found a sufficient check and barrier to the exorbitant passions of men neither kindness nor severity nor mox nor pain nor honor nor infamy nor the terrors of death a proof how far human malice or ambition is an overmatch for human wisdom since laws and constitutions framed by the best and wisest men have first or last become the sport and conquest of the worst sometimes of the most foolish could wise establishments have ensured the stability of a state that of rome had been immortal besides adopting all the best institutions of the free states of greece at her principal struggle and employment for some centuries was the subduing of foreign enemies by arms and the securing of domestic liberty by wholesome laws. And for laws and arms, she was the wonder and glory of the earth. But she, whose force and policy no power could withstand, not that of Greece, nor of Carthage, nor of the world, fell by the corruption and perdifiousness and violence of her own citizens. The only sword that could hurt her was her own. With that, she trusted Caesar, and that he turned unnaturally upon his own mother, and by it enslaved her. Catiline's conspiracy and crime every man detests. Yet Caesar accomplished what Catiline only intended. Had he better qualities than Catiline? He was so much the worst, and able to do higher mischiefs. See how infatuation prevails. The same men who abhor Catiline admire Caesar, who actually did more evil than ever the wicked heart of Catiline ever conceived. But Catiline had no success, nor, consequently, flatterers. Had he succeeded, had he entailed Rome upon his race, and, and such as would have been concerned to have guarded his fame, there would not have been wanting flattering poets and historians to have echoed his praises and genius divine, his eloquence, courage, liberality, and politics, and how much the degeneracy of Rome wanted such a reformer, with every other topic urged in defense of Caesar. But Catiline failed, and is owned to have been a traitor. Caesar's iniquity was triumphant, so was his name, and after ages have continued to reverence him by the force of habit, and of superstition which swallows everything and examines nothing. When popular opinion has consecrated a man or a name, all that man's actions, however wicked or foolish, and everything done under that name, are sure to be consecrated too. The force of authority is irresistible and infatuating, and reason and truth must yield to prejudice and words. Section 2. Of the public corruption by Caesar, promoted or introduced, with his bold and wicked conduct. Was the commonwealth become disjointed and corrupt? As in truth, it was deeply and dangerously. Who had contributed so much as Caesar to that wicked work? From his first appearance in the world, he confederated with every public incendiary, with every troubler of the peace of the state. 
with every traitor against his country, insomuch that he was divested of the dignity of praetor by the solemn decree of senate, and when he solicited for his consulship, his ambition and violent designs were so much apprehended that that supreme office, that to check him with a proper colleague, the senators contributed a great sum of money. Nor did even Cato deny that such a contribution, however against law, was necessary then to save the state. He began that office with violent acts of power. By violence, dispossessed his colleague of all share of the administration. And during the whole term, he raised and pulled down, gave and took away by mere will and power, whatsoever and whomsoever he would, terrified some, imprisoned others, forged plots, suborned lying accusers, and then murdered them, and trampled upon all faith and law. To escape punishment for all these outrages, he corrupted and bribed the people to choose his own creatures into the magistracy, or bribed the magistrates after they were chosen. He went so far as even to engage some of them by oath and writing never to call him to account, nor suffer him to be called. By the same wicked methods, he obtained for his lot the province of Gaul, and kept it for ten years, committing fresh treason every day, making war of his own head, right or wrong, upon friend and foe, insomuch that it was proposed in Senate to deliver him up to the enemy, but faction and bribery saved him, and from the most extensive rapine he derived his power of bribing. He feasted the people, he gave them largesse, he gained the senators by money, the soldiers by donatives, nay, the favorite servants and lowest slaves of considerable men were bribed by him. Every prodigal, every expensive youth, every man indebted and desperate, every criminal found in him a ready support and protector. And when their expenses, debts, and crimes were so excessive as to admit of no relief from him, to such was he wont to preach the absolute necessity of a civil war. Nor did foreign kings and nations escape his court and gifts. Upon them he bestowed aids and arms and captives, all belonging to the Roman people, and without their authority. Thus to purchase foreign friendship against the day of usurpation and need. To do all this, he robbed the provinces, plundered towns, pillaged temples, even the capital he plundered, whence he stole a vast quantity of gold, and placed so much gilt brass in the room of it, and put whole kingdoms and provinces under contribution to his preview purse. How many thousands deaths did this man deserve, even before he had committed his capital iniquity? It was he who thus principally corrupted the state, and embroiled it, and unsettled it, in all its parts. He offered indeed to disband his forces, if Pompey would do so too. But even this offer was given law to Rome. The Senate was to judge, and not Caesar, what armies were to be disbanded, what to be retained. Besides, even that proposal was justly suspected to have been faithless and hollow, since, had he executed the same, it would have been easier for him to have reassembled, upon occasion, his veteran soldiers than for Pompey, his troops lately levied. Had there been no corruption in the state, such a man was enough to introduce it. From his infancy he was thought to have meditated the enslavement of his country, and in order to enslave it, created corruption or improved it. To commit the blackest treason and iniquity that the malice of man could devise, he struck at no other, but by a babble of crimes accomplished the highest. Section 3. Caesar might have purified and reformed the state, but far different were his intentions. His art, 
good sense, and continued ill designs. Did the state want reforming? Why did not Caesar reform and restore it? This would have been true glory, the only true use of his absolute power, and the only amends for having assumed it. The work, too, was practicable. The wisest and gravest men in Rome thought it so, even after all the poison and depravity introduced by him. Brutus, Cicero, and the Senate thought so. Else he would never have been put to death by those who did it. If the state had been deemed irretrievable, and a usurper a necessary evil, they could not have had a better than Caesar. But they judged themselves, and for some time liberty was actually restored. Why it subsisted no longer was owing to casualties and the faithlessness of Octavius. No human wisdom can take in all incidents and possibilities at one view. To see them by secession is often to see them too late, and against what is not foreseen no remedy can be provided. Cicero, who swayed the Senate, in hatred to Anthony, trusted Octavius too much, and raised him too high, and was by that false creature given up to the slaughter, to satiate the vengeance of Anthony, to cement their late union, and to begin the bloody tragedy which they had meditated against their country and her liberty, by the murder of so signal a patriot. What followed was horrible, continued massacres in the rage of the sword, the people armed against one another, two-thirds of them destroyed, and Augustus established sovereign over the rest. He, too, thought it possible to resettle the old free state by proposing once or twice to resign. However insincere he were, it was a confession that he thought it to be practicable, and Drusus, his wife's son, declared his own purpose to effect it. Nay, it was what Tiberius, after he was emperor, pretended to do. Caesar was said to have foretold the public calamities and civil wars to ensue. Why did he not prevent them? By his dictatorial power he might have removed what enormities and made what regulations he would, suppressed the insolence of particulars, revived the force of laws, and reduced the commonwealth to her first principles and firmness. Instead of this, he continued more and more to break her remaining balance, to weaken and debauch the people, and to destroy every law of liberty. Liberty and the Republic were adjust to Caesar. He treated the very name with ridicule and contempt. He punned upon Sulla for resigning his usurped power. He had nothing in his head or heart but absolute rule, a diadem, the title of king, and controlling the world according to his lust. Nay, to have his very words go for laws, and as a proof that he meant to entail all this pompous dominion upon his race, he had a law ready to be proposed for a privilege of taking as many wives as he thought fit, and of what quality and condition he thought fit. His acts of tyranny were indeed so many, so high and insupportable, that even his dear friends, the populace, notwithstanding all his bounties, his feasts and shows, and his other arts to soothe and debauch them, grew sullen and discontented. They declaimed against such usurpation in their houses and in the forum. They called aloud for avengers and gave him public affronts. By the laws of Rome, the dominion of one, and consequently the dominion of Caesar, was detestable and accursed, and any man was warranted to slay the tyrant. Nor was there any valid reason against killing Caesar, but that someone as bad or worse was to follow. Now the best and ablest Romans judged themselves, as I have shown. And who is better qualified to judge? As to Caesar's prophecy of worse times, it was decided in his favor, and not to be credited and there was policy in it as well as vanity. The accomplishments of Caesar, the mildness of his administration, and the mercy to his enemies have been much magnified. 
It is certain that he had exquisite abilities and address, but how did he apply them? Was it not to be master of mankind? And was not this interest and self-love? What could be more interested, what more selfish, than to take the world to himself? Caesar had good sense and experience. He knew that particular acts of cruelty and revenge were odious, even more odious than the slaughter of thousands, under the title of war and conquest, however unprovoked and unjust. So much more quarter from the world has ambition than cruelty, though the former is often the more mischievous passion. He knew that, while general acts of blood would pass for heroism, fit to be distinguished with praise and laurels, a particular life, taken away in anger, would pass for barbarity. What fallacy is there in sounds, and in the imaginations of men? We judge not of evil by its quality, the true medium of judging, but by its name, and the quality of the doer and the sufferer, hence the foolish causes of popularity without merit and innocence. Acts of rage, the execution of particulars, and a vindictive reign would have diminished the hero and tarnished his fame. As much as his generosity to enemies, his noble contempt of fear and offenders, blazoned his glory and begot admirers. Section 4. The probability of his waxing more cruel had he reigned much longer. The generous, though forgiving, temper of Caesar was no sure warrant that he would not have broke out into personal cruelties, for, of his public cruelty, Rome and the world were the theater and the witnesses. He must have acted agreeably to the necessities and jealousy of power, broken those necks which would not bend, and destroyed such as he could not but constantly fear. I own there came after him some emperors who reigned without many acts of blood, but the sovereignty was then thoroughly established and they had no high spirits to fear, bred in the notions and possessions of liberty, as were all Romans in his time. Nor, even after servitude had begun, and for some time suffered under Caesar, could the second triumvirate think themselves secure, till they had destroyed at once by prescription a whole army of illustrious Romans, such as they conceived would oppose and even extirpate their dominion. Nor did this tragical precaution and general barbarity put an end to barbarity in particular instances, Augustus, for the first years of his reign, was making almost daily sacrifices of noble blood to his fears and safety. Power of itself makes men wanton, distrustful, and cruel. Caesar lived not long enough in purple to show what he would prove. Five months were but a short time for a trial. It would be rash to assert that he who had shed the blood of nations and armies without provocation, without authority, he who had violated liberty and law and put chains upon his country and the race of men, would have spared particular lives, when from particular lives he had come to apprehend danger and revolt. He that could be piqued even to folly and ridicule, because Aquila the tribune did not rise as he passed by. He who could not put up this, nor forget it, nor cease mentioning it upon every occasion for a long while after, nor even forbear scolding at it, must have been capable of carrying his resentment very far, as well as of sudden anger. Nay, been full of capricious and childish humors. How far such humors and vanity and anger might have carried him, he lived not to show. But he had amply shown that his ambition was dearer to him than Rome and the whole earth. And to this private passion of his, every public regard had yielded. The genuine mark this of a tyrant, who rules the state for his own sake, and, rather than not rule it, enthralls it. Caesar, who had committed all wickedness to gain power, would have committed more to have kept it, as soon as he found it to be necessary. What avails the fair behavior of one who may do what he pleases? 
what avail his fair promises, which he may break when he pleases? The worst of the Roman emperors began their reigns well, many of them excellently well, as Nero, Claudius, Caligula, Domitian. Some of them reigned well for some years. Caesar was generous, magnificent, and humane to affection. But every passion, every sentiment must yield to the ardent lust of reigning. Had it not been for his great and acceptable qualities, he could not have introduced public bondage. The hero, the orator, and the fine gentleman hid the usurper, and palliated, at least, the usurpation. Let any man consider Caesar as a subject of a state, altogether private, one who never bore office or authority, as a physician, a scribe, or an artist, or one just started out of obscurity, or come from another country, and then ask himself, what has this man, this private unknown man, to do with governing all men against laws established by all? His being once consul, his commanding of armies and appearing in a great public light, gave him no more right to do what he did than the quality of an artist, a scribe, physician, upstart, or stranger would have given him. Public trusts betrayed were aggravations of his crime, horrible aggravations. So were his excellent parts impiously applied. Section 5. Caesar, no lawful magistrate, but a public enemy. Of Caesar, his usurpation and death, I have reasoned largely elsewhere, and shall here abridge part of that reasoning. He had no sort of title but success, gained by violence and all wicked means. The acquiring and exercising of power by force is tyranny, nor is success any proof of right. If the person of Caesar was sacred, so is the person of every usurper and tyrant. And if all the privileges and impunity belonging to a lawful magistrate do also appertain to a lawless intruder and public oppressor, then all these blessed consequences follow. There is an utter end to all right and wrong, public and private. Every usurper is a lawful magistrate. Every magistrate may be a lawless tyrant. It is unlawful to resist the greatest human evil. The necessary means of self-preservation are unlawful. Though it be lawful and expedient to destroy little robbers, who are so for subsistence, it is impious and unlawful to oppose great robbers, who destroy nations out of lust and ambition. Public mischief is defended by giving it a good name, since tyranny may be practiced with impunity, if it be but called magistry, and the exorable authors of it are sacred, if they but call themselves magistrates. Though it be unlawful to be a public destroyer, yet it is unlawful to destroy him, and to prevent or punish that which is most unpious and lawful. In fine, any man who has wickedness and force enough to destroy or enslave the whole world may do it and be safe. If Caesar was a lawful magistrate, every powerful villain may make himself one, and lawful magistrates may become such by mere force and iniquity. But if lawful magistracy be not acquired by violence and butchery, Caesar was none. If he was not, how came he by the rights and impunity of such? Against lawless force, every man has a right to use force. Caesar had no more right than Alaric, Attila, or Brennus, who were foreign invaders. His crime was greater, as to that of usurpation he added those of ingratitude and treachery. It is owned that when he first made war upon his country, his country had a right to make war upon him. How come that right to cease when he had heightened that iniquity by success? Is it lawful to resist a robber before he has robbed you? but not after? Is a wickedness lessened by aggravations? Caesar had forfeited his life by all the laws of Rome. 
was it not as lawful to take it away by thirty men as by thirty thousand in the senate as in the field a private man in society however capitally injured must not be his own judge but leave revenge to the more impartial law but a capital offender against all who sets himself above law and judgment is a public enemy and violence is the proper remedy for violence when no other is left in a state of nature every man has a right to vindicate himself when society is dissolved the same right returns men can never be deprived of both public protection and private defence caesar had violated every tie that can bind the human soul oaths trust and law he had violated everything dear to the human kind their peace liberty rights and possessions he did all this by means the most black and flagitious by plots faction corruption robbery devastation sacrilege and slaughter what was left to the oppressed romans to do under the bonds of the oppressor with his sword at their throat laws and appeals were no more a tyrant was their master the will of a tyrant their law because he had slaughtered and destroyed one half of the people had he thence a right to govern the rest there was no public force to oppose him he had destroyed many of the armies of the state and appropriated the rest to himself against the state it would have been madness to have thought of judicial process in short there was no other way of abolishing his tyranny but by dispatching the tyrant section six of the share which casualties had in raising the name and memory of caesar the judgment of cicero concerning him people suffer their own imaginations to abuse and mislead them the sound of caesar's name the superstitious reverence paid to him his great employments great victories and even his great usurpation are all pompous images that dazzle the eyes and give a false lustre to the blackest iniquity and imposture nay it proved an advantage to the fame and defence of caesar that he was assassinated hence so much popular pity and lamentation for him hence so much rage and obloquy upon the tyrannicides a violent death or violent sufferings often pass for great merit often atone for great crimes and in the compassion for the doom of criminals the abhorrence of their villainies is often extinguished malefactors the most barbarous who never showed any mercy in their lives are bewailed at their execution only because they are executed there were circumstances also in his death favorable to his fame he died with decency and a manly spirit and he fell by the hands of his friends these circumstances and his bloody shirt displayed to a mob with an artful melting speech from anthony inflame them with sorrow and fury two gross passions which do not reason but feel the same topics have ever since furnished undiscerning declaimers with big words and vehemence in behalf of so fine a man slain for no fault but that of his usurpation and tyranny a small crime that of being the enemy of humankind as to the glory and prosperous fortune of this mighty conqueror cicero says with great truth that felicity is nothing else but good fortune assisting righteous counsels nor can he whose purposes are not upright be from any success esteemed in any wise happy hence it is that from the impious and abandoned pursuits of caesar no true felicity could flow happier in my judgment was camillus under exile from his country than manlius his cotemporary had been though he had acquired over his country that tyranny which he had lusted after the same wise man says elsewhere that he would have preferred the last day of antonius the orator 
tragical as it was to the usurped rule of Cinna, by whom that worthy Roman was barbarously murdered. I cannot admire Caesar's ambition. He would rather have been lord of a poor village than the second man in Rome. To me, it appears more glory to be the member of a free state, especially the greatest state upon earth, than a lord of slaves, the biggest lord. Section 7. How vain it is to extol any designs of his for the glory of the Roman people. It is said that Caesar was meditating great and glorious things for the Roman people when he was cut off. He might have indeed gathered empty laurels for himself by more wars at the expense of the people, but how could this have redounded to their advantage I cannot see. I can easily see that all the future strength he could have acquired must have been acquired to himself and over them, and every accession of power must, by raising his tyranny higher, have sunk them lower and strengthened their chains. He wanted to fight the Parthians, but first he wanted to be king, and for this purpose a prophecy was forged that none but a king could conquer them. Was this impudent forgery too, and the design of it, for the glory of the people who were abused by it? In short, he could have done nothing beneficial or glorious for the Roman people, but to have restored them to their ancient and substantial glory, that of their liberty and laws. This too would have been the highest glory of his own life, which, to those who consider things as they are, stripped of foolish fair names and disguises, is, without this, all over, black and infamous. No man's life can be said to be detestable if his was not. Seeing all the malefactors condemned since there were men in crimes, did not half the mischief which he did. It was even currently believed, and what worse could be believed of him than what he had done, that he had meant to translate the seat of empire, with all of its strength, to Ilium, or to Alexandria, and having exhausted all Italy by great levies, that she might never recover herself, he would have begun, probably, a new sort of sovereignty, upon his own model, exempt from the names and appearances of the old constitution and laws, which still had reverence paid to them at Rome, and consequently were so many grievances to him. Rome he intended to have left to the dominion of his creatures. It is probable he thought himself not safe at Rome, nor in any place which had ever known the governance of laws, nor anywhere but at the head of armies. He had reason for his fear. The severest oppressor can never tie the hands of all the oppressed, nor put chains upon their resentments. Section 8 of his death, and the rashness of ascribing to divine vengeance the fate of such as slew him. In the midst of his farther designs, whatever they were, a bloody doom overtook this man of blood, and he was lawfully slain, though not by the forms of law. His lawless power had made this impossible. It is true, they who slew him were themselves slain. The righteousness of a cause does not always ensure its success. Too seldom, God knows. But they who perish in defense of the laws are slain against law. Such was the difference between his death and theirs. They were vanquished and slain in a great civil war, at a time when courage and virtue and patriotism were capital and prescribed. Did none of those who destroyed Caesar die a natural death? No more did Caesar, who destroyed the state. If this was not a judgment upon him, why should theirs be one upon them? What rule have we to know a judgment, but from the justice or iniquity of a cause? If so, Caesar fell by the appointment of heaven, Brutus and his brethren by the malice of men. But if there is no rule, or if judgments like parties take different sides, how dare we pronounce? How many of the Caesars, his successors, died naturally? 
not one, if we believe the historians and probability, from Caesar the dictator to the emperor Vespasian. Augustus was poisoned by Livia, his wife, Tiberius smothered by Macro, his favorite, to make way for Caligula, who was slain with the sword by the officers of his guard. Agrippina poisoned her husband Claudius. Nero stabbed himself. Galba was murdered by the soldiers. So was Vitellius. Otho fell by his own hands. End of Discourse 3